morning again. Hopefully, you have a Bible, and if you do, please turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We will look at verses uh, chapter 21 and verses 15 through 22 this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. We'll look at this. Um, willing, next week we'll um, look at uh, the uh, song of David, the psalm of David for his deliverance. But for now we will finish out, Lord willing, 2 Samuel chapter 21 by examining verses 15 through 22. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. Now, I will ask you, if you're physically able to do so, to please stand with me because we do want to honor God's word. If you're physically able to do so, I would ask that you would stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord given to us this morning. This is literally what the Lord says. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him, or so, servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushethite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jair Oragim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. There, these four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and how we can take and look at your word. May you now bless your word and bless your people as we hear and apply your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In accordance with your word, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. Can be seated. It is all the rage today to talk about facing down our giants. It's all the rage to talk about how we have to look at the giants of fear and depression and anxiety and to chase down and face all of these giant things that face us in our life. And it's a popular thing for pastors to take this passage and say, well, I don't know what else to do with it, so let's talk about all the giants that you're facing today. Well, that's certainly not how the Bible is meant to be interpreted, and that's certainly not what we're going to do this morning. We are going to look at facing giants, and there will be certainly application, and most certainly there is application for how we look at life and face the difficulties in life, but certainly that's not what God's Word is meant to be, uh, to be done with God's Word. And so um, we will neither look at the giants of temptation and guilt and worry and all of these other things, nor will we look at the stones of faith that are so popular either, things like courage and prayer and submission. Again, all good application points, but not what the point of the passage is. I think 
uh, we have to look at what the Israelites would have understood the point of the passage to be and what God's purpose in the passage to be in order for us to properly understand it. So this morning what I want to do is I want to show you some truths here about these giants and how God enabled the Lord, uh, the, the David and ultimately the Lord Jesus to face the giants that are represented here. Um, and so let's look at, let's, let's do this a little differently this morning. First, let's look at the giants here that are presented in our text. Um, the giants that are presented in our text. Um, sometimes it's very popular for us to remove the supernatural elements of Scripture and try to, in our modernistic or postmodernistic society, we try to put, an, put a, a less supernatural spin on things. But the problem is that when we do that, we dismiss a large portion of what is being communicated. And so when we look at these giants, we need to understand a couple of different things. First, we need to understand that they, they were all of one line or one lineage. They all came from and all come from one lineage. The, the name of the, the father is Rapha here in the text and literally is, stands in understanding for the Rephaim. Who were the Rephaim? Well, they were related to the Anakim. Well, who were the Anakim, you may ask? Well, or the Zuzamim. Who were they? Well, they were all related to the Nephilim. And who were the Nephilim? Well, back in Genesis chapter 6, we are told that the sons of God, whoever they were, looked upon the daughters of men and took them as their wives. And as a result, giants were born to men. Giants were born to men. So whatever else can be said about who the sons of God were, most certainly as a result, the Nephilim, these giants were born, and they continued to bear fruit even far after the flood, even after they were wiped out in the flood, there continued to be some sort of genetic makeup within mankind, and that the, apparently the wives of Noah's sons carried these markers, so much so that these giants continued to be born. And we'd say, well, you know, and again, we try to, we try to say, well, you know, um, these weren't really giants. I mean, after all, the average... The average uh, um, uh, Israelite was around five foot, five foot three, maybe five foot five at the most, uh, uh, and so he was a very. They, they were very small people, so to them, a six foot eight type of person would be a very large person. But that is to undercredit the the, the veracity of Scripture and what Scripture teaches us here about the, their line and their lineage. These were, we are told from Scripture, these giants ranged respectively between. 9 and 13 feet, each giant being different, each giant being different, and they were born. Their line survived the flood through genetics and spread among the dispersed nations and ended up settling in the, one of the principal settlements here in Can there in Canaan at the time in which the, and they, they allied themselves with the Philistines. But they were also a family who loved godlessness and evil. And this has always been the case since the Nephilim had appeared upon the earth and went on down through the, uh, through the, uh, the Anakim and the Rephaim and all of these other lines. They, this line for, for, for always and forever had been a godless and evil group of people. This line had long ago abandoned the worship of the one true and living God. 
They cared nothing for God. They cared nothing for God's people. They hated God. They hated his people. They wanted nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, they opposed him at every turn. They opposed the God of Israel at every turn. As we'll see where, uh, where um, uh, Shimei's son, Jonathan, goes down because this giant like Goliath before him uh, was pompously lifting himself up against the forces of Israel. And Jonathan, like David before him, his uncle before him, killed the giant who dared to stand against the God of Israel. And so this was a godless family line, a godless family lineage who had long ago abandoned the worship of the one true and living God. They served other gods. They served the gods of the nations, right? We're told in 1 Samuel 17, 43, that Goliath cursed David by his, and I quote, by his gods. And this had not changed. This line, this lineage had not changed, not one bit. But it was a family who loved themselves as well. Because as you look at this group of giants or other giants that had come before them, right, the Anakim or the Nephilim or any of these others, these people, these groups of people, they were a, they, they constantly, uh, over and against the God of Israel, they constantly exalted themselves. They said, look at us, look how great we are, fear us. You should be trembling and fearful. And the thing that we know that makes this family so different than what we would call tall people today is that these men were men of great strength, and they were able to do great things. Most of the time today, if we have people that are over seven foot, they suffer from some sort of anomaly, and they're not able to walk well. They're not able to, to uh, sometimes they're not able to reason well, but these were not those types of men. These men were men of great stature and great ability. They walked the talk. And so we're not just talking about large people who grow that way because they have some kind of glandular disorder, right, whereby they grow big and tall. But they were also a destructive family because they had built for themselves walled cities. As we go through Joshua, as you go through Joshua and Judges and you look throughout the, the, the Old Testament as God is destroying the nations and purifying the land as he promised to the nation of Israel, you'll find that these giants, these people, had built for themselves these walled cities and fortresses, these strongholds, and whenever possible, they sought to destroy and impose, destroy godliness and goodness and impose all sorts and forms of wickedness and godlessness. But what about their names? They come from one family line, but what about their names? Well, we're told of four here, aren't we? We're told of four different giants here. We're told of the first one whose name was Ishbi Banab, right? Um, that's it's a very strange name. I don't know anybody going around naming their children Ishbi Banab today. But if, if you were, uh, it literally means, the name literally means my dwelling is on high, or literally my dwelling is, or seat is in Nob. Uh, Nob literally means a height or high place. So in reality, it means the same thing. My dwelling is on high or my seat is on high. Thus, thus uh, again, uh, seeking to exalt themselves. So it would have this, the same meaning of being able to exalt oneself, to be able to honor oneself, his own name. Ishbi Banab is able, he's able to say, I am able to exalt myself because I am such a large, imposing person. No one will ever dare to stand against me. What makes this so intriguing, though, is that previously 
what had happened at Nob. If you remember, as we've gone through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll remember that David, running and fleeing from Saul, had fled to the priests of God at Nob. And because of their faithfulness to David and their love for David and their knowledge, honestly, their knowledge that, that nothing, that anything was wrong, they didn't know anything was wrong, Saul didn't care, and so he slaughters the priests of Nob and more than likely the Gibeonites too that we just read about here in 2 Samuel, and this is where the slaughter of the Gibeonites also take place that we talked about last or two weeks ago. And so these, these in their place though, what comes? The Philistines and the giants and the wickedness of the nations replace the godliness of God's people and the, the line of the priests at Nob are now replaced with giants of Nob. Wicked men seeking to do wicked things, imposing wicked values and standards upon the land and upon the nation. The very thing God said should not have happened was in fact taking place. And so we find that Nob was a place where it once honored God is now a place that is filled with self-indulgence, self-exaltation, and self-praise. But we know that this wasn't just any old spear either, right? We know that the spear that this man wielded, right, just the tip of the spear was, was, around, was around 12 pounds, right? Between 8 and 13 pounds, generally probably between 12 and 13 pounds. And his armor, he was armored and dressed just like Goliath, Ishbi Benab was. And he was determined to do something, to get vengeance. He was going to kill the man that had killed his relative, Goliath. He had determined that you had slain Goliath years before. I will now have the I now have the opportunity. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to enact vengeance upon you, David. And if it had not been for Abishai, as we'll look at it in here in a few moments, if it had not been for Abishai, one of David's generals, who came to his aid, he would have died because Ishbi Benab would have slaughtered him. But this giant was a man filled with pride and excessive praise because he has, he has no respect for David or for the armies of Israel. He has, he has, as a matter of fact, he would be disrespectful, right, in his views of Israel and the God of Israel and the, 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 uh, the, the nation of Israel and the king of Israel. He devalued them. He, he acted wickedly in seeking to destroy he who God had raised up to set upon his throne. And let's just be honest here, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, pride is often the root cause of many of our sins. We, like Ishbi Banab, if we're not careful, can find ourselves facing a very dangerous adversary in the form of our pride and self-exaltation. After all, right, we are told, right, we are told, we, are, we tell ourselves, well, you know, it's just a little thing not realizing that this little thing is wicked thing. And God tells us that we are not to be proud in Jeremiah 13, 15, or in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty eight, or what about James 4, 6? We're told not to be proud. Matter of fact, we're told that if we are proud, God will go so far as to resist us. But instead, God says that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt us in due season and in due time. 
And I would say this to us, Christian. We must be careful that for us, right, for us, we who are believing in the promises of God, we must constantly have ourselves and our position must constantly be that of one of humility, of one of humbleness, one of grace. That doesn't mean that we don't take stands or strong stands. It doesn't mean that we don't say hard things. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't make hard stands. But, but instead, what it means is that we do so with great humility. We do so with great love and humility, love for the Lord and humbleness before the Lord. And I would say this to you, if you are, do not know Christ this morning, I would say this to you, your pride is what keeps you from, your sa- from the Savior. Your sin and your wickedness is what keeps you from your Savior. Yes, yeah, I understand, certainly, and I, I agree and understand that God must most certainly draw you sovereignly for His own glory and for His own, for his own honor. But certainly, it is the pride and the arrogance that keeps you from fleeing from your sin to Christ. No one can be saved as long as we are still proud. God does not save proud people. God saves the humble. Those who weep over their sin. As Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who weep. We must take up for ourselves a position of humility. And if you are not in Christ, then you must flee from your pride and your self-righteousness and your sin and flee in faith to Jesus Christ and His finished work for you upon the cross. But then there's a second giant here. The second giant uh, is a a Philistine. Again, uh, we see him being named um, after Abishai. And we'll get back to Abishai and his, his rescue of David here in just a moment. But we also find in verse 19, we find another, another giant. Um, we're told that he kills that Elhanan, uh, or Elhanan, kills Goliath's brother. Um, and so uh, we are told that he is a, a fearsome man. And um, we know that his name right here, um, we, we know that he is a, uh, he is a man who um, seeks to honor uh, honor himself again honor his honor his name again and Elhanan right he destroys Goliath's brother now I will make one interesting note to you in your translation you should see where brother is in highlights why because it's not in the Hebrew text it is something that the translators gave us to try to help us interpret this passage of scripture it's not it's not in the original hebrew text it's not in the hebrew it just simply says goliath the gittite and so we understand that elhanan did not in fact kill goliath since goliath died many years prior to this so who was it well it was in fact either goliath's brother as the text says or it could be also translated goliath the Gittite, meaning that it was the, it is Goliath's son who was named after him, Goliath, as a way to honor him. And so obviously this was not the giant that David killed, right? Instead, it was either his brother or, as the text says, or it was, in fact, his son named after him with the same name. But whatever the case may be, this giant 
was a powerful and fierce and tenacious foe. And only by the strength of God was Elhanan able to defeat and to kill this being, this giant, right? This giant. And it was, it was in fact, this giant that Elhanan killed for, uh, for resisting and seeking again to resist God's will. He was powerful, fierce, tenacious, had great strength, and it was only by the strength that God gives Elhanan that he's able to kill and defeat this giant. And I would simply say to us, Christian, again, by way of simply application, we're not called to live our lives in the strength and the power that we can provide. We're not called to face down trials and troubles and tribulations and issues and problems in this life in and of our own strength but rather we are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and to seek to live all of life in the power of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit because we can't overcome our sin or our pride in our own strength we must have the power of God I mean certainly we can polish it we can make it look nice we can make it even smell nice Right? We can make it look presentable, but at the end of the day, only the power of God through the gospel and the spirit of God working in us can truly change a man or a woman. Can give us healing, lasting grace and lasting healing from our sin, lasting victory over against our sin. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. I did, I did, I apologize, I did skip over one, one giant. Let's go back real quick and pick it up. And that was the giant Saf. Saf was, in fact, killed by uh, Sibachai, the Hushathite. And let me just simply say this about this giant named Saf. In, in Chronicles, he's given a little bit of a different name. Uh, his name is Sipai, but in 1 Chronicles 27, 11. But Sibachai the Hushite kills this Philistine whose name, Saf, literally means fence keeper, defender, or defender of the outer rim. In other words, what this, what this is telling us about this giant is that he wanted to, he was given to protect his city, his town, his temple, and his culture over against all things that God had commanded. He was called to keep and be a keeper of the worship of his gods and his culture over against what the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded to be done. And so the question, I think, arises for us, if we're not careful, is this us? Is this us? You say, what do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. Do we seek to honor that which the Lord hates? Do we seek to, eval- to, to elevate that which God detests in our hearts and in our lives? Do we seek to protect that thing that God says, no, it dishonors me to, or dishonors me in? Or do we seek to honor Christ by giving him, by by trusting in him and by repenting and looking to Christ? And then lastly, we have this no-name giant. And truthfully, we don't even, we don't know his name. It's not given to us in any way, shape, or form. But there was a 24-digit giant. There's a 24-digit giant that just appears here in our text. 
and he's killed by a man by the name of Jonathan, who was David's nephew. This man, we're told, was powerful. Right? We're not told how tall, unlike the others, right? Uh, it just, unlike the other giants that are listed in Scripture, it just says that he was of a great stature. He was a very big, tall man. That's all it says. And he is of great height. It's literally the translation there. He is of great height. And what does that mean? Well, it means that he was one big old dude. And this man, Jonathan, goes down and he destroys this giant in faith as David, his uncle, had done prior to him. I would say that for us all, we are need to be reminded as we're talking about these giants, God has given to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9.23, I think something that we need to always keep in mind concerning this text and others and as well as application in our lives. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must honor the Lord and humble ourselves before Christ. But then there's a second, there's a second reality. Let's take a look. So we looked at the giants, but let's look at these men of renown, these men of great fame, these men of great faith. First, we have Abishai, right, who killed the first giant. He, we, we don't know a lot about these men. We know a few things. Abishai, for instance, was David's oldest nephew. He was the older brother of Joab and Asahel. He had a heart, though, that we do know this, that he was fiercely loyal to David. He was a commander of one of the three divisions of David's army, and he was second in command only to Joab, his brother. He was included among the mighty men of the 30 mighty men of David, David's bodyguard. And he was, in fact, the reason why David was able to continue to live, because Abishai saw David is in trouble, and so he goes and he kills Ishbibanab. We also know that more than likely he was either dead or retired by the time Adonijah and Solomon's struggle for power had come about because he's not even named, he's not even mentioned. Joab is, but uh, Abishai is not. So he was either at that point retired or more likely probably had passed. And then we have this other man who fought the second giant, the Saph, right? Sibachai, which simply means Yahweh intervenes. He was one of David's guards, one of the mighty men of David. He was given the eighth month of the year uh, and a command over 24,000 of fighting men to, to come and take guard during the eighth month of, the, of Israel's history, or his, Israel's uh, yearly calendar. He was from Husha. He killed the giant Saph and is later listed in 2 Samuel 23 as one of the three men who risk their lives to get water for David from the town of Bethlehem that was in control of being controlled by the Philistines. Thirdly, we have a man by the name of El Hanan. Or El, um, it literally means God has been gracious. We just really know, all we really know about him was that he was from Bethlehem and that he killed Goliath's namesake at Gob or at Gezer, right, or Gezer. And then lastly, we know Jonathan, Jonathan, whose name literally means Yahweh has given, David's nephew, slew the 24-digit giant in Gath, and numbered among the David's mighty 30 men. And we say, well, that's all great, 
And that's all fine, but I don't think any of us here are going out fighting six-fingered or 24-digit-fingered giants, right? Well, that's true. That's true. But I would say this. These men underlie a very important point, and I think God most certainly wants us to understand that point. I think there's a couple of different things that can be said here. One, God was purging the line and the lineage of the giants once and for all from the lineage of man, and God used his people to do that, faithful men, godly men, to to accomplish that. Second of all, though, I think can be said is that, particularly in our time, there seems to be fewer and fewer men. I don't mean like biological men. I, I mean men, men with chests, men of courage and confidence, Men who don't necessarily have to go out and fight in a literal battlefield to fight literal giants, right? But what I mean is men who are not willing to compromise biblical principles. Men who are not willing to compromise anything on the altar of cultural acceptance and being accepted by our culture. Men who, who are willing to sacrifice in, in their love for their wives and their children, Men who love God and love His Word. Men who are willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel. Men who fear the Lord, serve the local church faithfully, and fierce and are fiercely loyal to one another because we are brothers in Christ. We are a band of brothers joined by the blood of Christ, which is greater than any physical blood relation that we have. That's what makes a man. Right? You don't have to go out here and you don't have to go out here and traipsing around the wood. It's it's awesome, it's great. I love shooting guns, right? It's it's fantastic, right? I love fishing, I love hunting, I love all of these things. But you don't have to do that to be a man. You could be a man who simply by loving his wife and children well, by loving God and loving his word well by risking everything for the sake of the gospel, making disciples, fearing God, loving the local church faithfully, and fiercely being loyal to one another, brothers in Christ, right? These, this is what it means to be a man, brothers. This is what it means to be a man. Our culture tells us all kinds of things, but this is what God says men do and men are. The character of the men that have been mentioned is the point here. Yes, they did miraculous and great and glorious things, but the point of the character is what matters. Do you notice who's not mentioned here? There's a glaring name here not mentioned that we would think would be a man by the name of Joab. He's a very shady man. A man who was loyal, but loyal only to his purposes and his means to David and the kingdom. These brothers, these men were men who were fiercely loyal to Yahweh and to the, God, to the God of Israel, but to the nation of Israel and the king of Israel, who loved God and loved their kingdom, who loved, who loved the nation of Israel. Thirdly, though, there is, I think, a third aspect in all of this, and that is the lamp of Israel. Because David, being a warrior king, he goes out and he says, well, I'm going to go out. I'm now between the ages of 60 and 64. I think I can still do it. And he gets out and he almost dies, right? Because David was a warrior king. In other words, David didn't ask his men to risk anything that he wasn't willing to risk himself. 
David asked his men to risk their lives. David risked his life. David asked his men to go into battle, but only because he first led the charge into battle. David only did what he did, not asking his soldiers to do anything less than what he was willing to do himself. He was a man of the people and a man of his soldiers. He was a man who led from the front, not the back. If too many people trying to lead from the back and not enough leading from the front... We have too many sticking their fingers up in the air of cultural, of cultural norms and saying, well, is it the wind blowing this way or is it blowing that way? Who cares the way the wind's blowing? Let's stand upon God's word. And we need men who are not going to lead from the back and say, well, look, the, look, the people are going that way, so let's just go this way. Or the people are going this way, let's go this way. No, they're men who were willing, as David, to lead from the front. I think the Puritan George Downham has said this best. He said, the Christian soldier must avoid two evils. He must not faint or yield in the time of fight. And after a victory, he must not wax insolent and secure. When he has overcome, he is to behave himself as though he were presently again to be assaulted. For Satan's temptations, like the waves of the sea, do follow one after the other. And so David was willing to fight and continue to fight until the point that he was just no longer physically able to do it. David was between the ages of 60 and 64, more likely more towards 64 at this point. And his, his vigor was beginning to wind down. And so he had to learn quickly his limitations because Abishai and the men come to him and they say, David, you almost died and the lamp of Israel was almost put out uh, and, and we can't do that. And so David quickly had to adapt because he had to learn his limitations. Listen, brothers, there's no shame in growing from one point in life to another, right? I know, I know we don't like growing older. None of us do, I don't think. But we have been called in each area of life that we are placed in to glorify God. And we must quickly learn to adapt. David was almost killed because he forgot that he had limitations, we must not, we must not overexert ourselves in, in, in ways that are sinful and wicked, but rather know our limitations and, like David, understand them and adapt to them. Because there are different seasons and callings for each one of these seasons throughout your lives and my life. This is not weakness. You're not less useful because you can't climb up on a roof and, do, and work 20-hour days like you used to. That's not weakness. That's not frailty. This is a gradual move to success in a different area of life. Why? Because ultimately we're called to set others up for success. So let me, let me say this to each one of us here. Young men, you need the wisdom of the older men. Are you seeking the wisdom and encouraging the older men of this congregation with your zeal? Older men, you need the zeal and the vitality of younger men. Are you setting them up for success by sharing your wisdom and inspiring them to go on to greater faithfulness? And men like me, middle-aged men, now in our almost, I'll be 45 this year, middle-aged men, we have strength, we still have strength. Maybe not as much strength as we did when we were in our 20s or 30s, but we still have strength. Are we employing the strength that we have for God's glory Realizing that there's a time quickly coming when we also will, like the fathers who are ahead of us, become the fathers. And are we do, what are we doing to prepare ourselves and those who will come behind us to honor God and to glorify Him?
And we also need to know and understand that there's a time simply to withdraw. And that's what David had to learn quickly. David quickly had to learn that it was time for him to withdraw. He was not at a point to where he could fight like he used to fight. He could still fight, but just not quite as intensely as he did. And he almost died because of it. Different seasons of life bring different responsibilities, and that's okay. We need to simply be faithful and honor the Lord in whatever season we may find ourselves. One of, one of the, the, the military men that I've always admired was General Douglas MacArthur. Um, unlike, all of, unlike all of us, he, he, had, he had his faults and, and whatnot, but I think it was interesting. I've always liked Douglas MacArthur, and it was interesting that in April of 1951, he was called in recognition of his status as one of the greatest military leaders in the United States history. He was called to give a speech to Congress, and this was his speech. He says, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him, the light to see that duty. Goodbye. Brothers, we must be faithful until that day in which we say goodbye. We must honor God until that day in which we say goodbye. We must do this for the glory of God and honor Christ. Lastly, quickly, let me say this. Where is Jesus in our text? Well, he's all over the place. First, Jesus is the true light of Israel, the true lamp of Israel, who can never be extinguished, though Satan thought he extinguished him upon the cross. Though Satan certainly thought that he had won a battle or a victory over God himself. Christ, the true light of Israel that gives light to all men, did not, did not perish and was not extinguished. Jesus, unlike David, does not grow weary and tired, but instead is our King of kings and Lord of lords who rightly 24 hours a day, seven days a week, rightly rules his kingdom and watches over it all and protects it all. But we must also not forget the Lord is also a mighty warrior. Like David, Jesus is the greater warrior, though, who will come and subjugate his enemies at the end. Once and for all, his enemies will be subjugated to the rule and reign of Christ. Because the Lord is a mighty warrior. He is the Lord who is strong in battle. The Lord of hosts, the commander of all of his armies of heaven. And ultimately on the cross, Jesus himself conquered the giants of Satan, sin, and death that were against us and that we could have never overcome in our own strength or power. And so for those of us who put our trust in Christ, we are delivered from the enemies of our soul and we are given new and right, a right relationship with God the Father through His Son and the work of His Son on the cross for sinners. That is that you and I, we have rebelled against the holy and righteous God. We have sinned and as a result we are sinners. And yet Christ has died for sinners to set those who come to Him free. And I would say this, while it is good and right to appreciate those who have faithfully served as David's soldiers did for him, it is not, a, it is not for you and I to exalt our, world, our earthly leaders, but rather for us to exalt Christ and Christ alone. And this ultimately is a call then for those who don't know Christ to enlist. For those of you that don't know Christ, enlist, this is the call. Bow the knee, bend the knee, come to Christ and submit to his authority in the work of his, his the work of that he has accomplished on the cross for sinners. He has made a way for sinners to be made right with the Father through grace, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Come to him, submit to his authority. 
But Christian, let me close with a question for us. Are we as faithful and loyal? Are we as loyal? Let me ask it that way. Are we as loyal to King Jesus as David's men were to him? Christian brother, are you and I as loyal? I didn't say faithful. I said loyal to King Jesus as David's men were to him. Because certainly, if we can be loyal to worldly leaders, how much more are we to be loyal to the true king who rules the nations? Let's pray. Father, may you help us now to humble our hearts before you. May you draw those who do not know Christ to yourself through the preaching of the gospel. May you use this to encourage us who are in Christ to greater loyalty and to follow Christ realizing what he has done, realizing that once and for all that the giants that stood against us, the handwriting of ordinance, as Paul tells us in Colossians, that was against us, the handwriting that was against us, listing all of our sins has been placed under the blood of Christ if we are in fact in Christ. We thank you that Christ has defeated all of his foes and will one day show forth that victory as all of his foes are placed under his feet. Oh God, we thank you for that victory that's even now a reality. May you use us to preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations that we may see the king's kingdom expanded. And we pray this in Jesus' name.